Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. This is going to be our, this is our sutra study, this is our Buddhist studies class. Um, tonight we're doing a new sutra, as always, the uh, Potopata Sutta. Uh, this is a sutra, or a sutta, Pali Sutta from the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha. Um, and sort of the main reason why I'm doing this sutra is that this month, December, is sort of consciousness month. We're exploring sort of the dhyanic realms. And I'm leading a series of meditation and dharma talks on Friday nights in which we're walking through these four formless dhyanas, infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, and the state of neither perception or non-perception. And in those dharma talks, we're just touching on ideas, just touching on them. And so I thought as a compliment to that, if people were coming or just for our fun here on Sunday nights, that we would do a deep dive into these states of being and really learn a lot more about what the Buddha is talking about. And this particular sutra, the Pothapada, Pothapada Sutra, is called the Sutra on States of Consciousness. So I figured that was the, the, a good one to go to. Now... Actually, what I'm going to be doing is um, I'm going to be reading uh, from this, and you're actually going to see me jumping to other sutras. And it's because what happens often with the Pali suttas uh, in this collection is that there's, there's parts of these sutras that are very famous sections, actually sections on describing the four dhyanas, for example, that... It gets repeated exactly the same way in every single sutra. And so what they do is, is that when you get to that part in this sutra, they just say, see sutra number two. <laughs> like, good luck. And it actually kind of disrupts the sutra a little bit because he's in the middle of a thought. And it's very helpful to go to sutra number two and read the proper section and then come back. So you're going to see me jumping around. And actually... In my opinion, this isn't the best sutra on the states of consciousness, but there's a few things in here that are very interesting that are not really in other sutras. So our, our friend Potapata, who is a, a wanderer, uh, he's going to be a great foil for the Buddha and some of his ideas. Um, yeah, I've written a lot of things on the board that we're going to talk about. And tonight, actually, in terms of what this sutra is about specifically, we're going to be spending all night talking about samya, what is translated as perception. Um, and if you are familiar with the concept of neither perception nor non-perception, or the Buddhist concept of the limit of reality or the limit of perception, those two perceptions, and actually in a sense all of these formless realms, they're dealing with this idea of samya, of uh, this idea of perception, not consciousness per se, not this vinyana, but samya. So tonight is all about samya. This is a great sutra for getting into this idea. 
And I think I'll just start reading it, and then when it seems appropriate to stop and start explaining, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is sutra number nine in the Diga Nikaya. Uh, Thus have I heard, once the Lord, the Buddha, was staying in Shravasti, in Jeddah's Grove, in Anatha Pindika's park. And at that time, the wanderer, Pothopata, was at the debating hall near the Tundaka tree in a single hall park of Queen Malika with a large crowd of about 300 wanderers. So this guy, Potapata, he's a, a, a wandering ascetic, right? So he's not a Brahmin, he's not a Brahmin priest, but he's one of these other guys who was basically like the Buddha in a way. He had followers, he was a wanderer, he was an ascetic. And this seems to have been... At 500 BC in India, there seemed to have been these kind of gangs of philosophers. Gangs of, gangs of philosophers, right? So Potapata, he had his, his crew. And then the Lord, the Buddha, rising early, took his robe and bowl and went into Shravasti to beg for alms. But it occurred to him, it is too early to go to Shravasti for alms. <clears throat> Suppose I were to go to the debating hall to see the wanderer Potapata. And so he did. There, Potapata was sitting with his crowd of wanderers, and they were all shouting and making a great commotion, indulging in various kinds of unedifying conversation, such as about kings or robbers and ministers and armies, dan dangers, wars, food, drink, clothes, beds, garlands, perfumes, relatives, carriages, villages, towns and cities, countries, women, heroes, street and well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, speculations about land and sea, and talk about being and non-being. <laughs> but Potopata saw the Lord Buddha coming from a distance, and so he called to his followers and ordered, saying, Be quiet, gentlemen. Don't make a noise, gentlemen. The ascetic Gotama is coming, and he likes quiet and speaks in praise of quiet. If he sees that this company is quiet, he will most likely want to come and visit us. And at this, the wanderers all fell silent. Then the Lord Buddha came to Potapata, who said, Come, Reverend Buddha, welcome, Reverend Buddha. At last, the Reverend Lord has gone out of his way to come here. Be seated, Lord, and your seat is prepared. The Lord sat down on the prepared seat, and Potapata took a low stool and sat down to one side. The Lord said, Potapata, what were you all just talking about? What conversation have I interrupted? Potapata replied, Lord, never mind that conversation we were having just now. It will not be difficult for the Lord to hear about that later. <laughs> In the past few days, however, Lord, the discussion among the ascetics of various schools and other Brahmins sitting together and meeting in this debating hall has concerned the higher extinction of consciousness. And actually what that word, the higher extinction of consciousness is, is actually samya nirodha. It's actually abhi samya nirodha. So this ultimate state of the cessation, nirodha, of samya. All right? So... Um, the talk concerned the higher extinction of samya, of consciousness, and how this takes place. 
Some ascetics and Brahmins said that one's perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition. When they arise, one is conscious. When they cease, then one is unconscious. That is how they explain it. But somebody else said, no, 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 that is not how it is. Perceptions are a person's self, which comes and goes. When it comes, one is conscious. When it goes, one is unconscious. Another said, that is not how it goes. There are ascetics and Brahmins of great power, of great influence. They draw down consciousness into a man and withdraw it. When they draw it down into him, he is conscious. And when they withdraw it, he is unconscious. And another said, no, that is not how it is. There are deities of great power, of great influence. They draw down consciousness into a man and withdraw it. When they draw it down into him, he is conscious. And when they withdraw it, he is unconscious. It was in this connection that I thought of the Lord, said Prothapata. Ah, surely the blessed one, the welfarer, he is extremely skilled about such matters. The blessed Lord well understands the higher extinction of consciousness. What then, Lord Buddha, is this higher extinction of consciousness? The, the Lord Buddha said, In this manner, Potapata, those ascetics and Brahmins who say one's perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition are totally wrong. And why is that? One's perceptions arise and cease owing to a cause and to conditions. Some perceptions arise through mental training and some pass away through mental training. What is this mental training, the Lord said? Pothopata, a tathagata, arises in this world, an arahat, fully enlightened Buddha, endowed with wisdom and conduct, welfarer, knower of the worlds, incomparable trainer of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and blessed one. He having realized it by his own super, not, super knowledge, proclaims this world with its devas, maras, and brahmins, its princes, and its people. He preaches the Dharma, which is lovely in its beginning, lovely in the middle, and lovely in the end, in the spirit and in the letter, and displays the fully perfected and purified holy life. A disciple of his goes forth and practices moralities, and that for him is morality. Skipping a big section on morality. And then Potapata, that monk who is perfected in morality, sees no danger from any side. And in this way, he becomes perfected in morality. And so he guards the sense doors. And how, sire, is a guardian as one to guard the sense doors? <coughs> Here a monk, on seeing a visible object with the eye, does not grasp at its major signs or secondary characteristics. Because desire and sorrow and other evil unskilled states would overwhelm him if he dwelt, leaving this eye faculty unguarded. So he practices guarding it. He, practice, he protects the eye faculty, develops restraint of the eye faculty. On hearing sounds with the ear, or smelling an odor with the nose, or tasting flavor with the tongue, or feeling an object with his body, 
or thinking a thought with his mind. He does not grasp at any major signs or secondary characteristics. He develops restraint of the mind faculty. He experiences within himself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining this guarding of the faculties. In this way, sire, a monk is a guardian of the sense doors. And how, sire, is a monk accomplished in mindfulness and clear awareness? Here, a monk acts with clear awareness in going forth and going back, in looking ahead and looking behind, in bending and stretching, in wearing his outer and inner robe, and in carrying his bowl, in eating, drinking, chewing, swallowing, evacuating, urinating, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, speaking, and in keeping silent, he acts with clear awareness. In this way, a monk is accomplished in mindfulness and clear awareness. And how is a monk contented? Here a monk is satisfied with a robe to protect his body, with alms to satisfy his stomach, and having accepted sufficient food, he goes on his way. Just as a bird with wings flies hither and thither, burdened by nothing but its wings, so a monk is satisfied. And in this way, sire, a monk becomes contented. And in this way, guarding the sense doors and becoming contented, a monk reaches the first jhana, or dhyana. He remains in it. And whatever sensations of desire that he previously had disappear. At that time, there is present a true but subtle perception of delight and joy, born of detachment, and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and joy. In this way, some perceptions arise through mental training, and some pass away through mental training. And this is that training, said the Lord. Again, a monk, with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind, he reaches and remains in the second jhana, which is free from thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and joy. His former true but subtle perception of delight and joy, born of detachment, vanishes. At that time, there arises a true but subtle perception of delight and joy, born of concentration, and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and joy. In this way, some perceptions arise through mental training and some pass away through mental training. Again, after the fading away of delight, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, and he experiences in his body that pleasant feeling of which the noble ones say, happy dwells the man of equanimity and mindfulness. And he reaches and remains in a third jhana, his former true but subtle sense of delight and joy born of concentration vanishes, and there arises at that time a true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness, and he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training of the mind and some pass away through training the mind. Again, with the abandonment of a pleasure and pain, with the disappearance of previous joy and grief, he reaches and remains the, in the fourth jhana, 
a state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. His former true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanishes, and there arises a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. And he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through mental training. Again, by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction, to the perception of diversity. Seeing that space is infinite, he reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. And in this way, some perceptions arise through mental training and some pass away through mental training. I'm going to pause there. Yeah, before we go any further... Let's talk about perception. So keep all that in mind, right? Just so I've drawn this little diagram on the board here. And again, if you came in after what we're talking about tonight uh, is this idea of perception. And I, this is bad color coding. I meant to color code this, but it's not. We're talking about this idea of perception, samya. And so that's all of this pertains to that. And so really quickly, I just want to walk through, if you don't know this sort of Buddhist worldview of these five, what are called five skandhas or the five elements of the self, I want to walk this through real quick. So this is you, of course, the meditator. And the way that Buddhism sees this whole uh, process of you know, it's not even consciousness. It's actually what we're really kind of talking about tonight in, in, in terms of mind, thought, thinking. We're talking about citta. This is if you're like a Buddhist, like in, really into Buddhism and you want to know. So we're talking about citta as mind. That's sort of the, what we're talking about. And the way that this mind of ours works according to Buddhism is that first you start with this idea of rupa or form and rupa is matter so within some traditions they say rupa is anything made of the four elements earth fire water and air uh, we're talking about physical matter in terms of the, the little stick figure you in terms of you the meditator this is rupa bodily matter this is rupa too. This thing in here, the eyeball, it's made of rupa. It's made of the same kind of stuff as the rest of all of this. It's just kind of fancy, right? It's like fancy matter, right? And the tongue is fancy matter, right? And so this body made of form with organs made of form is in the business of having sparsha, of having contact with other form, other matter. It's just matter meeting matter. My eyeball is made of matter. The book's made of matter. Look, oh, right? So it's just contact, the touching of rupa and rupa. But again, these organs, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the flesh, and the brain, 
those organs that are made of rupa, again, they're kind of fancy. They're like kind of, um, well, they're sensitive. So what happens is, is that when this, all this flesh, or the eye, or the ear, or the nose, or the tongue, when it comes into contact with other matter, there arises vidana, or sensations. And I've been talking about this a, a, few, a few different ways, but sensations in Buddhism, these vidana are basically just positive, negative, or neutral reactions to things. And if you really wanted to think about it, actually, what these are are either clinging, grasping movements towards things, or revolting, like movement away from things. And what I have been saying a lot lately is this vidana, these sensations, this is happening in every cell of your body. It's, this is consciousness and higher thinking is over here. We're not there yet. What we're talking about is this general view of the way the body or just actually the way phenomena works, but definitely the being a alive phenomena. Every cell in our body is seeking a state of comfort. If it's too warm over here, it's going to want to go over there. If it's too bright over here, it's going to go over here. So this reaction to the world and, and being like, oh yeah, I like that. Let's go over there. Every cell in our body is doing that all the time. We're constantly, through the colliding of rupa upon rupa, these sensations are arising and it's guiding us. We are our reactions to things in that sense, right? But again, I don't, a lot of people will put like emotions in here. These are not emotions. These are not feelings about things. These are not like that. This is much more autonomic, autonomic responses to the world. Just the way like you're, you, you, you will blink. You will blink because it's too bright. That's the eye saying like, no way. That's like negative. I don't want any more of that. But when you're in the sports bar or whatever, and you find yourself just like staring at the screen, like, oh, wow, I don't even like basketball. But I, that's your eye liking it, wanting it, not being repulsed by it, but actually being driven by it. So again, whether it's sounds that we like or don't like, temperature we like or don't, whatever it is, it's a constant vidana off, right? Okay, so now we are matter, flesh, having this constant negative or positive reaction to the world. And through that process, there arises these samya, perceptions of the world. This is what we're talking about tonight. I'm going to mention these, but I want to, mention, I want to talk about this samya. So this... Um, Samnya. Nya is our jnana or knowledge. Gnosis. Our gnosis. So the English or the English word know comes from the Greek word know or sis, gnosis. And gnosis actually comes from jnana. The, the Sanskrit. So the Greeks got it from the Sanskrit and we got it from the Greeks. So the word nyo. To know. The reason why you're putting your tongue at the roof of your mouth and saying no is because jnana. Because the cerebral, the palatal, putting your tongue up there is, is, it's of that nature, of the knowledge, of the knowledge nature. 
So that's our nya. And if you know your Buddhist words like pranya or um, all kinds of nya, um, there's a lot of words that will either be something nya or nya something, and they all have to do with this knowledge. And this sam nya, this word, this prefix in Sanskrit, is the same as the English. That's where we get the English word same, is ultimately from the Sanskrit. So we're talking about same nya, same nyana. And actually, what they're sort of talking about with this is, is perception in the sense of when you look at this, how do you know what it is? Like when I were, to, if I were to ask you, like, what is that? Jordan, what is that? Both. How do you know that? Because I've seen other ones. Samya. That's, you said it, Jordan. Samya. Because I've seen other ones. I've seen a bull. I know about bulls. That is your samya. To, to be like, oh yeah, I know what that is. And the way that's operating is, is well, it's complex. Because, well, I, I want to stay focused on this idea of perception as it relates to this idea of bhakshana. In the text I read, they called it major, what do they call it? Major signs and secondary characteristics. Those are lakshana. Characteristics, signs, marks, qualities of things. And I'm, all, I'm always using the bowl. But the idea is, is that when I ask Jordan, how do you know what this is? How did you know this isn't a book? Because it doesn't look like it. It doesn't really have the characteristics of a book, right? Yeah. It doesn't have the marks or the signs of a book. It has all the marks and the signs of a bull, though. It's hollow, round. Hollow and round screams bull, or screams bull right? So what Samya is, is this Lakshanic game. It is the, the how we know what, what it is that we're looking at. That mental process of... And, and, in many ways, this is discrimination, right? But the word discrimination, especially in English, is like kind of a real heavy word and unfortunately loses its philosophic meaning. But it is what actually we mean here. To discriminate means to be like, oh, look, a bowl, a pillow, and a table. I'm going to discriminate them from each other in my mind, right? So the whole time that this text is talking about, uh, eventually we're going to get to the limited perception, neither having perception nor not having perception, or when Potapata asks, how do you teach the extinction of consciousness? He actually asks, how do you, how do you teach the extinction of samyak activity? That's basically, was, yeah, how, do you, how do you cease this samyak activity, right? Now, why is he interested in that question? Why is that desirable? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. It's a really great question because we don't know. They just jump right in. Now, if you, if you study sutras, you know that the extinction of consciousness or the liberation process, that's the name of the game. That's what everybody's interested in. So it's sort of um, a given. But your question's right on, which is like, well, why? I'm going to read further so that we 
get sort of the Pothapata and the Buddhist answer to this, but it's a great question, which is like, why would you even want to do that? So let me just quickly, just in case it's your first time here, I want to finish this then so we know what these two are. So let me put it to you this way. It's a kind of a funny thing about Buddhism that because the, the body and the organs are sort of, they're there, they come into contact with the world and these vidana happen that we either like or don't like. What's really kind of funny about it from a Buddhist point of view is that the way this is kind of working is that the organs have this sensation and then they're like, I don't like that. What was that? And then the dissomnia comes in and says discriminates. So let's, let's say that I'm over here and I hear this bat and I don't like it. There's this thing going on. I don't like that. So I turn around to wonder, to because I've had this vedanic experience that's negative, and I'm like, what the heck was that? Then I turn around, and I'm like, couldn't have been that. Couldn't have been that. Couldn't have been. This is all the samya happening, by the way. Couldn't have been that. Couldn't. Must have been that. It must have been that bowl, based samya, based on characteristics and marks. It's like round, hollow, metal. That matches up with the negative sound, which is this kind of high metallic sound I didn't like. That must be the culprit. Yeah. So then what samskara is, is I call it conditioning. Usually this is translated as volition, which is kind of rough. But samskara is this accrual or a buildup of emotional, emotional and intellectual responses to things. And what that means is, is that I'm sitting over here, I hear the thing that I don't like, and then I'm like, I don't like that. What is that? Oh, that's a bull. Yeah, bulls. I don't like bulls, right? So now I've had this experience. Now let's say it happens again. Wait, what was that? Oh, yeah, it was that bull again. These bulls are a real problem. So now I'm starting to develop what is called a samskara a conditioned response to round, hollow objects. Don't like them. So now what happens is, is that now, all of a sudden, I'm walking down the street, and my rupa eye, my eyes of form, have a sensation. I'm like, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. And then through my perception, I go, look, round, hollow thing. I don't like the, Like, this is a new one. But I'm like, but it looks, has the same characteristics as the other thing that really bothered me. Yeah, I don't like it. I haven't even heard this one. This one might sound beautiful. But based on its characteristics and my conditioned feeling about it, my emotional response to it, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay away from that thing. I know all about that thing because it's round and hollow. Round and hollow things are terrible. Now, so this is my samskara. Now, consciousness, this activity that we usually associate with thinking, consciousness, right? Well, what's really happening from a Buddhist point of view is that these conditioned responses are like, um, well, I've used this example a lot, but if you haven't heard it, it's it's a helpful one. Imagine that before me is a mound of sand, right? 
And imagine that above that mound of sand is a spigot, a water spigot, and that spigot has a, a leak. And so these little droplets of water develop on the tip of the spigot and drop on this pile of sand. And as that first little drop falls, it rolls down the side of the mound of sand and creates this kind of tiny little groove in the sand. And then another little water droplet falls and rolls down this side. And then another little water droplet falls and it falls right where that first one fell. And so it goes down the groove that that first little water droplet made and it makes that groove a little deeper. And then another water droplet falls and that follows the route of that second droplet. And then another one drops and then another one drops and follows that route. And pretty soon after enough droplets have dropped and enough of these little canals have formed, pretty soon those droplets are going down one of the canals. It doesn't have a choice anymore to roll anywhere. It's given these grooves that now the droplets are just gonna keep doing. And each time it goes down that groove, it makes that groove a little deeper, right? Those grooves are the samskara. And the little water droplets are basically a flow of dharmas, a flow of ideas, our thinking. I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. But because of our samskaric conditioning of our mind, if I were to, I don't know, show you an object, you've got a couple of grooves. You're either eating cereal or you're, it's making a noise. What else have you got, right? What other grooves does your mind have for what this is? Because the idea is, is that you've seen round, hollow things so often and been so conditioned as to what they are, what they do, how to feel about them, the street value, everything about, about this, that when I bust out a new one, you couldn't possibly see the hearing aid. You couldn't see the little stool. You couldn't see the little hat. You couldn't see the helmet. You couldn't see all the other things that this actually is. I don't mean can be, I mean it is. But the grooves, the conditioned grooves of your mind are allowing you to consciously only be seeing cereal bowl, maybe meditation gong, that's it. Yeah? Sounds like samskara is the cause of hallucination in a way. Only if you consider all of this a great hallucination. which Buddhists more or less do. This is a hallucination based on your conditioned mind. This is what your mind looks like. We're going to get to that too, by the way, that idea. But, so this is the basic view that what we think of as our conscious mind is actually just the, 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 the little limits or the potentials that we're, we have in our mind to think whenever we're shown something or given something, Right? So again, consciousness is actually kind of a flow of thought through the canals of conditioning that are built up through this somnic perception. Because again, if you've determined that this is a bowl based on these lakshana, well then you're going to uh, reference that to your conditioning and think about it a certain way. But if you had a different somnic, samyanic experience of this, you would have a different emotional reaction to it and then have a, having a very different conscious experience of it. Everybody follow me on this? 
Okay. Now, now we can talk. So I want to talk about um, what would be called sati, smrti. Smrti, or this is Sanskrit, this is Pali. For mindfulness. Everybody heard of this practice of mindfulness? Right? Um, in a way, this could, for all intents and purposes, also be understood as concentration, what the Buddhists mean by concentration, all right? So... The way that mindfulness works, and I'll tie this back to the other side in one second, but this is sort of an an analogy that I've come up with for explaining how I think of mindfulness and mindful concentration or sati, sati in Buddhism. Think of a pie graph or a pie chart and take this small little one. And what this pie chart is going to represent is your mind, is your concentration, is your awareness. And what I'm suggesting, a way to think of this is, is that let's say, like right now in the regular normal state of mind, you've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, like 12 different things on your mind. You're, yeah, you're listening to me. Maybe that's like a nice big chunk of your mind. You're listening to me, but you all got, you got other stuff on your mind too. The things I say bring things up in your mind, uh, bring up whatever, relationship stuff. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe you don't have a ride home tonight. You're thinking, how am I going to get home tonight? You got a lot on your mind. So your mind's divided. All these different things kind of, right? And what I'm going to suggest with this example is that The more slices of the pie, the smaller the circumference of this circle gets. Meaning that in the normal state, like where we have basically 12 things on our mind, we feel as if our awareness is between our ears and behind our eyes. Literally, the circumference of our awareness feels like it's about yay big. Right? But now imagine that I practice Buddhist sati, mindfulness which means placing my awareness either on my breath, on a candle flame, on the Buddha. And the practice of mindfulness or sati is to try to have only one thing on your mind. Whether it's the breath or the candle flame or the Buddha, the idea is to try to not think about your ride home, not think about eating later, not think about that. And if you get it down to just say eight things on your mind, the circumference gets bigger and you actually feel your awareness expand. Then if you could get it down to just like four things, now you're getting really expansive. If you could get it down to just two things, me and my breath, me and the candle flame, that's it. It's just, that's it. I am completely present. I'm not thinking about the past, no regrets, no memories, no past. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm totally, totally present, and I'm totally present with an object. Again, my breath, the Buddha, or a candle flame, but there's only my awareness and it. This is basically sort of third jhana. So if we go back, this is like third jhana level when there's just me and it. And it's broad, the awareness is very broad. 
not feeling trapped, be, not truly feeling trapped in my body. In fact, if this is, is being regular Joe trapped in my mind, the moment I transcend that feeling of being trapped in my body and I have a sense of like liberation or freedom in that, that's the first jhana. That's the joy they speak of that comes from feeling not trapped in your body. Feeling slightly free, that keeps going all the way up to the third jhana. Now, the fourth jhana that they describe, this, straight of, this state of equanimity, is when, <laughs> you guessed it, when this line is gone and there is a union between what was originally the subject and the object, the circumference of the circle becomes size of the universe. Right? So you have kind of a, a, a samadhi, a union experience with an object, consciousness the size of the universe. As soon as some ideas start creeping in, the consciousness or awareness shrinks, a couple more things sneak in, shrinks, and then pretty soon, ah, I'm back. <laughs> right. Everybody get this. So this is the process. This is the roadmap. And then what they are talking about in terms of how to move through these stages to eventually arrive at the formless realm of infinite space, the, what they are talking about is our relationship to samya, and in particular, this lakshana samya relationship, perception and characteristics. Um, I want to share an example. I, sh I shared this example in my Dharma talk, and I think it was useful or helpful. Um, I mentioned this uh, optical illusion of an image where there is uh, what looks like two faces or a glass, like a wine glass. Everybody know this optical illusion, right? Nope. Can you imagine such a thing? So it's a famous kind of image, and if you look at it one way, the noses of the faces actually are making a wine glass. And what I use this example to show is that the general view, the general Buddhist view of the world is that we are sort of, the world that we think we're seeing is actually sort of what's called the kamadatu, the desire realm. And I like to use this uh, optical illusion to sort of illustrate this idea um, because what they're going to be talking about is this being trapped in the realm of desire, of our own desires. And if we can transcend our wanting and our desire, we can move into this realm of just what's usually called pure form. Just the form of things without our projecting value, use, and things on it. So, for example, to move from the realm of desire to the realm of pure form. Imagine that optical illusion. And this is all going to pertain to these five skandhas too. Imagine that um, I'm somebody and I, li I like wine, I like to drink, right? And I need a drink <laughs> right now. And so you show me this optical illusion, I'm going to see a wine glass. Because that's my, well, it's a lot of things. Right? It's a lot of things. There's a lot going on there in terms of what I'm attracted to, therefore what it is based on its form, based on its qualities, looks like a wine glass, 
has the, has the lakshana of the wine glass. I love wine glasses because every single time I've had a wine glass in my hand in the past, it's been great. So based on my past conditioning, based on the wine glass, that's my consciousness. But then there's somebody else and they're really lonely. They're looking for a partner. They haven't had a partner for a long time. They don't, they don't really drink at all. And they see this image and they see these two symmetrical faces staring at each other. And they're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want a partner. And so that person, based on what their positive and negative reactions are, they see the two faces, right? And they're like, I love faces. I love, you know, and that's their conscious experience. So what I want you to understand is going on here is that person A, person B, looking at exactly the same form, exactly the same shaped item, but based on their samskara and samnya, they see two totally different things. And what they're seeing is their desires, right? If you follow what I'm saying, right? That that person wants it to be a wine glass and that person wants it to be people. So that little example, if, if you th- sit on that, meditate on it, think about it, it's, again, the same exact image seen by two different people. And one person is like, yeah, isn't that a great-looking wine glass? Hmm, wine glass? What are you talking about? That's two people. So now, all of a sudden, they're not, they're not eye-to-eye because they're two different people, two different sets of five skandhas. What I want you to see, though, is that that relationship of I see it this way, you see it that way, is all based on a, a read, a lakshanic read that it's, it's or reading into in that way. And so if both of those people were to do the, the exercise on the back, sati, mindfulness, calming down, and if they could calm their mind down long enough, quiet enough, to the point where they stopped projecting their desires onto this image, they would just see the form. And that would be the realm of pure form. Not a wine glass, not people, but the raw shape of it with no significance in that way. Yeah, okay, good. I think this is getting close to <laughs> something you said early on that I'm trying to figure out, which is, uh, so the pratyaksha is the other word that's commonly used for perception. And I was curious why we're using this word for perception instead of discrimination. And the question is kind of just basically, is this supposed to be discrimination below the level of conscious perception? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm being worried Because you still have pratyaksha in vijnana. This pratyaksha is conscious. And samya is not at the level of the conscious perception of the bowl, for example, but at the discriminatory level prior to the conscious perception of the bowl. It's yep. discriminating below. Everybody, everybody understand what he just said? Yep. Okay, so now the, <laughs> the, the second thing I think is something you think is very cool, actually, which is in... Um, in visual processing models, there's a model called top-down and bottom-up, where they meet in the middle. And the idea is that there are two patterns of information that are descending into your visual stream. One is top-down, information coming from the top, like your desires, and one which is coming bottom-up, like the surface edge relations mm-hmm. in visual processing. 
And so there's this issue called a likelihood relation, where what happens is when someone is looking at this illusion, they both can see both opposing objects. The problem is that the illusion is caused by foreground background, and what's going on in your vision hits the scene. So if you look at the foreground, you're going to see the faces. If you look at the background, you're going to see the wine glass pop out. And so what's really interesting is the top-down effect if you have the desire for the partner, which is a really good explanation, Michael, because that's exactly what happens, is that the desire influences the processing of the edge information, and then right when it comes up into conscious processing, your eyes fall on the thing that you desire. So you pop up with the edge processing information that takes the likelihood relation to it being the wine glass, and all you have to do to see the, um, the other image is just pop your eyes back, mm -hmm. and it'll automatically pop out. But because you have the desire, you're kind of navigated, yep. your eyes are navigated to that at the discriminatory level, below your conscious processing, and that's what pops out to you. And then the person with the other profile has a top-down information that drives his conscious perception the other day. So yep. this, this story is highly consistent with um, Bayesian models of perception. It's very cool. And just to tie it back to my stand model, and every time we do that, it, 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 it reinforces yes, right, the exactly. illusion. Yeah. Yes. Right. Any other comments, questions? Thank you, Anand. Yep. I like discernment, but I mean perception and, and, and I would save discernment, though. Okay. And the reason why I would save discernment within the world of Buddhism is because I there's a lot of folks in this world that have forgotten about this beautiful word we have, discernment. Because we have this other word, which is judgment. And there's a lot of folks who forget this word discernment, and so they think everything is judgment. That everything is judgment. And the Buddhists, for the most part, are kind of like, well, yeah, we are doing that. But what they also want, though, is to allow for there to be just discrimination. You can discriminate this from that without judging them better or worse. In other words, you can still move in this world discriminating this from that, up from down, high from low, without judging it at all. So the discernment is this very special word that I would like to save for this, you know, kind of an operation of vinyana or citta, which is this discernment, because it's key in Buddhism that we are able to discern without judgment. I mean, yeah, discrimination also has Serious baggage pulled. That's along. again why I. But, but, but yeah. yeah, it's a tough little word game. But you, for some reason that you're not telling me, you don't want to use discernment or. Well, I want to save it. I want to save it for, for, other, oper for other operations. <laughs> yeah, because like Anand was just saying, this is way like it's before we've even thought about what it is we are using, doing, seeing. Well, this, in, in these, if you're interested in this, the. These highly, um, it's called cognitive impenetrability. So what happens is that you're forced to see one or the other based on your background conditioning. But there are other illusions where it looks like there's strong cultural variants. Actually, people who live in certain environments are prone to see certain kinds of illusions as popping up, while other people in other environments, their visual system isn't conditioned to actually be subject to the illusion. So for a long time, something called the Mueller liar illusion, where you have two straight lines and then the arrow goes inward, the arrow goes outward. It was thought that that illusion was highly universal until recently they discovered that it's in fact not. It's an edge-shaped orientation from your environment that gets huh. people like us to see it because we, see, we live in a world of corners. 
And people who don't live in a world of color, they just don't see the illusion at all. They see the line as being the same size right away. Huh. So there's there's something like that going on for some illusions. I don't know about this one, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. What, what's about the sanction? Um, based what it was an on is it? If I want to add the word unconscious before uh, perception, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So it's unconscious perception. Yeah, unconscious perception, and this is even like unconscious conditioning in that way. There's a way through meditation that we can observe these things, like kind of take that step back and be like, oh, that's my conditioning. But they are more or less un un pre-conscious or unconscious. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I think it's really cool this, with this presentation about discrimination versus judgment, just to make the deep analogy here. The, the large project of phenomenology in the 20th century is precisely in its birthplace, exactly this Buddhist point. That's why Buddhist phenomenology right now is such a big rage all over the world because the phenomenologists like Husserl argued at length that you can have perceptual states where you have discrimination but no judgment. So you can sit between and see just the form and neither have the judgment of the people or the wine glass. And it's the central project of phenomenology to articulate how the gap between discrimination and judgment happens. Huh. This is why lots of people uh, the last 15 years have been looking at the relationship between um, European phenomenology and um, Buddhism, yep. especially in uh, yoga chakra. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Does prejudgment come in there? There's a discernment between. Uh, it, well, in a, yeah, in a sense, like all of this, in a sense, is prejudice or prejudgment in that way, and and the Buddhist project is actually about what I just mentioned before about taking that step back, which is actually about taking that step back and seeing how much prejudgment is going into our basic operations of thinking. Yeah. Okay. Say right? Racket, right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Let me read a little bit more because there was one juicy part. I think we might have to do this in two days because there's a lot going on in here. But so where this winds up, and maybe now after this conversation, it'll all make a, it'll all sound a little clearer. So we're at the fourth jhana, state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. Great. Then again, by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations. But what they mean by bodily sensation there is like stimuli from the organs, seeing something, hearing something. And so um, by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, so if you remember when I said my example of not liking something and then being like, hey, what's that? And then I come over here and I separate all this into things so that then I can be like, yeah, that was the thing I didn't like. That's the diversity, separating it into diverse things. So this is saying by non-attraction, so the attraction is the wanting to separate things in order to make it understandable, so the non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, he reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. In this way, some practitioners arise through training of the mind and some pass away through training of the mind. Question? It's not emptiness. It's space. Yeah, so here is the thing. So if you take my example of the two faces and the, and the glass, and the, com the kamadatu, the desire realm, just sees what it 
thinks and what it wants to see, right? So I see the people. If I can get rid of that klesha and just enter the realm of pure form, I will see, oh, just the forms, diversity. I, I, I do see that that's dark and that's light. I do see the shape. I can still distinguish it all, right? <coughs> now, I, this is what my whole Dharma talk was on Friday, so I can't go through the whole thing again. But the basic idea, the, the basic idea of akasha or space is first, we're not talking outer space. We're not talking black void of space. Space is a, a dimension. This is in both Western and Eastern thinking. Whereas space is, an, I call it an allowance. Meaning it allows for something to be. There needs to be space. And the reason why this can be here and that can be there is because of space. Because if there was no space, everything would be in the same space. So it's space that allows for things to be what they are. You can think of this kind of in terms of time, that if there was no space in time, all things would be happening at the same time. But because there is this expansion, this space of time, there's experience of time. Same thing is spatial. Everything would collapse into one space you know, one or whatever, uh, singularity, I guess. So this idea of space is kind of mysterious because it's this dimension that is necessary because it allows for things to exist in it. It's an allowance. It allows for things to exist in it. It's a very kind of subtle idea. The way that I spoke about it in my Dharma talk is this idea of... Um, it's, it, even though it seems like it's not, it's highly language-based. And what I mean by that is, is that, like, we using, use, I use this one, which is, we have a word for this, which creates a nice illusion that this is one thing. Clock, one thing, right? But all evidence to the contrary, it is actually... Multiple things, right? So there's this beautiful sutra on emptiness, but before we get all the way to emptiness, there are stages before it. And what the Buddha suggests is, so imagine, so that same thing where, wow, you, it's one word, and all of a sudden it's one thing. Well, how about sangha? One thing. Well, now all of a sudden this is one thing, right? Well, now how about San Francisco? One thing. Uh, one monolithic solid object, just like our clock. United States, planet Earth, one thing, right? One monolithic solid object, right? So the, I, again, I can't do it justice in such short a time, but the idea of this meditation where one imagines the, the singular monolithic solidity of, in, in the sutra, it's the forest. You're sitting in the forest, the Buddha says, and yeah, there's the other monks and this and that, but that at a certain point, there's just forest as a singular monolithic one thing. 
And then, of course, you can flip that because you know, you know this isn't just one thing. You know San Francisco isn't just one thing. So the play between form and emptiness or space and form is very interesting. So when I, when I asked you to imagine San Francisco as one monolithic, just one thing, you kind of were able to do that, right? But you know it's not one thing, right? But that same operation of the mind that can somehow turn San Francisco into one monolithic solid thing, use that same operation to negate it. You see what I'm saying? In this, San Francisco is not one solid object. And yet you can conceptually conceive it as one solid object, right? Why can't you conceptually conceive of it as space? <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, this is a, this is a very, very subtle. Uh, so f- let, actually, let me back up a, one second about this. Question? Of course, of course. Not yet. Okay. It all relates to dependent <laughs> arising. It all does. But when we're in this level of talking about the minute psychology of how the mind works, we can't just dive right into saying it, you know, it, it's, it, we're in the, in the trenches right now. And I want to simplify this. If you go back to my, my chart, right? What we're talking about, yes, sati, shamatha, the calming. The calming gets us all the way to this point of having the chitta or the mindfulness beyond one thing and one thing alone. And I, and I mentioned, whether it's the breath, candlelight, or the Buddha, and within the Theravada tradition, there's 40 Buddha-approved foundations of mindfulness. There's 40 things that the Buddha supposedly said are good for inducing this process, or this leading to this vast awareness that is just meditating or just focused on one thing. Now, you start that by the breath, Buddha, the candle flame. And what this whole process is about is that when you have let go of all the the chitter-chatter and all of that, and you are down to just you and your breath, you and your breath, you can eventually, in in the same way, I don't know how this happens, But in the same way that you decided, I don't want to have 12 things on my mind. I am going to move my attention to that object and just focus on that object. So there's some some will that moves it to that, that has somehow decided, no, I don't want to be chitter. I'm going to move it just to one object. Whatever chitta, whatever mind that is that had moved that, now move it to the concept of vast open space so that the only perception you have, the only foundation, the only thing that your mind is thinking about and is on is vast open space. In 
Mind, vast open space. That's what you're kind of meditating on. So you've, you've moved it from the candle flame. And I guess my example of the forest flipping to nothingness is that you start on the candle flame, locked in, bringing about that samadhi or that, that union with the candle flame, right? And then all gives way to infinite space. No more flame, no more you, just vast open space. And what you're meditating on is this quality of space as an allowance, as an openness, as, as possibility. As a concept or as an experience of perceptual dimension of space that we can, you know, we can touch into from where we are here and now? Uh, I guess yeah. as a concept... But it gets tricky because to, to meditate on that candle flame is also kind of a concept from a Buddhist point of view, if you know what I mean. So the candle flame, vast open space, if that's a real candle flame, then real vast open space. If that is a concept, and that's what you're meditating, yeah, the concept of it. You see, I'm being a little tricky there, but... <laughs> the concept is moving, too, though. That flame. So uh, that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it really has to do with this relationship. So if you really understood what I'm saying with the glasses and the faces, and that there's no faces there also, by the way, right? That's anthropomorphization of lines, Right, that because something kind of looks like a nose or circles, it's like, well, look, eyeballs. So that's all projection, right? And so if you really understand that idea that there is no glass there <laughs> actually at all, there's, the, perce- there's the, the throwing of a perception onto it or the throwing of a meaning onto it, right? But the wine glass is not actually there. Right? Right? That movement, if you can really understand that movement between the, the delu- delusional view that is like, no, I see the, I see the glass. Kamadatu, right? And if you understand that subtle shift to the realm of form where there's the shape there, but I, it's not a wine glass anymore because it was never a wine glass, Right? There is a similar movement between the realm of form and the formless realm, which is to understand that the discrimination of anything, the discrimination that there's anything there at all, is the same as the discrimination that it's a wine glass. And the movement, that, uh, the movement of the mind that is like, oh, wow. Even the discrimination of, of that gives way to akasha, to space. When you realize that even the discrimination of anything is a projection of the mind as well. You, you thought because you made it to the realm of pure form that you were like in reality? You thought you were in like the real? Psych. No, you have just made it into the realm of pure form. 
there's an amazing section in here. Oh, but I don't even know. So you're saying that the, 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 realm, of the, the <laughs> realm of form is to the Kamadatu, as the formless realm is to the realm of form. Leave it to the mathematician. And, <laughs> and so, so it's a, that, that's what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. And I want. And that's like the only clue we get. Because <laughs> like, it's subtle at that point. It's so subtle at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Say that again. I'm, that old. So if you if you understand that movement from seeing a glass, which is desire, to seeing just the shapes, then there's a movement where just the shapes are going into just akasha into space. The discernment between that there is a thing or not a thing, you give up that discernment. And you couldn't make such a discernment without space. This is what I mean by space is an allowance. Which space is what allows you to make that discernment. Exactly. And that's why because there is space. What's left is the space that allowed it. <laughs> These are subtle realms, folks. These are very subtle realms. But we are touching it. We're like right there. But if you understand this idea of moving from the realm of desire to just these realm of form that are very subtle, we're just seeing kind of shape but without significance or meaning in that way. And then that moves to this idea of just space. So just the allowance, right? So it's the space that allows me to discern that there's anything there at all. That then gives way to there being just vijnana, just consciousness. And that's an even subtler shift in terms of seeing that, so vijnana, consciousness, makes sense of space. This is what we just said. The space is what allows the vijnana to think there's anything there to begin with, right? So then what happens when we recognize, oh, so there's space that consciousness can uh, use, uh, I, I say, can use as a canvas, Right? Space is the canvas that the mind throws it all on, discriminates, discerns, sees all kinds of stuff, right? So if you have the space that the consciousness is able to get anything out of, then you let go of even the space and there's just the vinyana. Just discrimination. Just discrimination. Infinite vinyana. No space, though. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if this is helpful, but so one typical distinction that is drawn is between a substance view of space and a relational view of space. Substance view of space is like it's the carpet which everything is on, mm-hmm. and it accounts for the relations having empty space between them. Yep. And the relational view is that there is no carpet, it's just relations between objects. Mm. So it sounds to me like if the way in which space is playing a role here in discrimination and consciousness, and it's a step to go from the forms to the space to just the consciousness, we have a question about whether or not this space is being understood substantively or relationally. And my guess is it's going to be relational, because Buddhists don't think that space is like a, a, a particular. That gets tricky. However, the first part, though, 
And it comes from, you'll appreciate this too, it comes from this very interesting question that for some reason everybody started asking me all at once, which was, does Akasha, does space have any Lakshana? And the idea is, is it does, and that's what the consciousness can make sense of. But it's also because, but I know, so you have the allowance sort yeah. of a view of what's going on with Akasha, but the other one is that it's the medium through which other things can move in consciousness, right? Yeah, but that moves toward move to, moves towards your rug, the rug oh, one, right? right. right? Where it's, it's yeah, yeah right. where it's a substratum or something yeah, like that. Is more relational. Yes, and I th- and I believe the Buddhists are more relational because because what they're talking about is space as a discrimination, a consequence of discrimination based on the lakshana. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So then we move to just the discriminating process itself without any sub- any that. And since time's ticking, I'm going to have to move along. But then, and again, I want you to think about that mind that was over here troubled and decided, no, no, I'm, I'm going to put my attention here. I'm going to work on this. That movement towards mindfulness keeps moving. Says, oh, yeah, I'm good. Now I'm going to place my consciousness on this concept of space and then that's going to give way to my consciousness being on consciousness itself which then they say because even that is a concept gives way to this akimkanya no thingness nothingness which is not emptiness nor is it space it's sort of nothingness there's a description of akimkanya as like nothing to get worked up about. There's nothing to desire there. That's Akikanya, nothing to be desired. So it's just like, kind of almost like oblivion that way where it's just, nobody's paying any attention to it. It's just not. And again, that is a, a place where the mind is resting, is on no thingness. And then that eventually gives way to this state of no samya, nor no not samya. And what I want you to understand is going on with this neither perception nor non-perception is what they're saying is on a perception lakshanic level, there's neither qualities or characteristics to be perceived, but there's not not qualities or characteristics to be perceived. This is where we move into an Advaita, non-dualistic kind of a mode here where it gets very tricky to talk about anything in that way. And they call this in the sutra, they call this the limit of perception. This is as far as you can go in terms of being inundated with lakshana, just being inundated with so much meaning and characteristics and qualities and significance. Oh my God, it's too much. I'm going to calm down, move my attention to just the bowl. I don't don't think the bowl is one of the 40, but just the bowl. And then as soon, not as soon as, but through the process of calming the mind through mindfulness on just one object, once one is in that fourth dhyana of upeksha, equanimity, no inside, no outside, no here, no there. I'm the bowl, the bowl is me. Let's move to infinite space. 
Then let's move to infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, and then neither nor. We're in this totally, again, you cannot describe it. That's the limit of perception. That's the limit. I, I didn't mention it, and I, I, it's, a, it's so late to do this, but these are not. <laughs> this word infinite is like some nonsense, actually. It's just akasha, vinyana, akim kanye. But these are ayatanas, bases. And this is why I keep using this, this they're ayatanas, they're, they're what the, the mind is on. That's what an ayatana is, is a base. Mm-hmm. Is another word alambana? Is that not the word? Support? Uh, oh! Mm, yeah, maybe, but they use ayatana. So, but it's this idea that it's support. it's what it, support. It's what the the mindfulness is on, and so just like it was on the candle flame, it's on space. And I, what I wanted to say was is that it's not infinite space. Actually, the word's akasha, but kasha is kind of a crazy word. So they want to let you know is like infinite space, not outer space. Infinite space. And it's not infinite consciousness, it's actually just vinyana ayatana, the base of consciousness. So, yep. My my sense is at each level, it transcends and includes the level? Yeah. Okay. So then, the consciousness, I'm just trying to play that through. Consciousness then transcends and includes space. So, so space is within consciousness. I don't do listic. This is what I'm trying to avoid. Is any kind of separating the space as an object is we're, we're missing that we're in that this is that this dividing line between these and these is that there's somebody in Diana meditating on their breath. At this point, there's a transcendence. There's a unity already. And so what we're talking about is this vast sense of unity that is somehow infinite space. Have you experienced things past the icon? So I will, I wanted to answer that actually. So this is all very tricky to teach, of course, because this is a 2,500 year old tradition that's gone through so many changes. Taking space, for example, actually in early Buddhism, space seemed to be the rug, and within a little bit, it was not a rug anymore. So they changed how they understood space and all of that. So this is very hard to, well, I mean, you know, I try, to, I try my best to teach it in this broad way, but if you want to get into any nitty gritties, you know, and so what these, you know, yeah, deep meditative states, yes, uh, within the... I'll say this just because why not? (laughs) Before the Buddha, the Buddha did not invent these jhanas, nor did he actually really invent these uh, higher formless samadhis either, like invent or come up with. He actually was trained in this process. Uh, I think it was uh, Lara Kalama. Lara Kalama was one of his teachers who I believe taught him the dhyana samadhi system. And before the Buddha, 
So at the time of the Buddha, everybody thought that if you made it to the state of neither perception or non-perception, that was what's called moksha, liberation. You're gone, you're good. Karma, white, <coughs> you're solid. And the, there's a long cosmology involved in what it means to be reborn, as they say, in the state of neither perception or non-perception. But let's just say, before the Buddha, people were trying to meditate, and if they got there, they were going to stay there. Here on Earth, you would see some dude atrophying and dying, <laughs> at, sitting in meditation, but he would be good, because he's in the state of neither perception or non-perception. The body could just fade away, and he's in the state of perception or non-perception. The Buddha held on to this process. This is, by the way, the, the roadmap of Shamatha, the roadmap of calming down. Surprisingly, actually, none of this is Vipassana. None of this is insight. It's actually, as crazy as all this made you, this is actually supposed to calm us down. <laughs> and what I, I remind you that we started with the billion lakshana that are driving me crazy and bringing it down to just one object and then bringing it down to even these subtle objects. Right? The Buddha held on to this and he said, yeah, we need to go through this. And according to Buddha Dharma, I'm not sure this is true of other Dharma uh, systems, but according to the Buddhist practice, when one enters the state of neither perception or non-perception, there is like a memory wipe, a karmic memory wipe that basically like resets the system, karmically speaking. It kind of erases past karma. And, so there, and, it, and there's a way in which in Buddhism they say that one must achieve this state in order to achieve these other states. So it's an exalted state, but what makes Buddhism unique is that it says, no, don't stay there. Come back. Come back into the world. So, to answer the question, I don't think I've actually, I maybe have even been in a fourth Diano one day or whatever. In terms of a seated practice where I have felt like I'm in the realm of infinite space in the consciousness, no, no, no. But I have uh, my own, which is not my own, but I have a, I guess a Mahayana view of these things, which is to say, this idea of infinite space, there was a moment tonight when we were like really, really close, and maybe some of you had like the glimpses of it, in my Mahayana view, that is being in the samadhi of infinite space, because as an ayatana, as a base, I had tried to bring your chitta, your awareness to just thinking about infinite space. And in those brief moments where you may have been like, whoa, that's the samadhi. Now, imagine in a seated meditation, like being deep in that feeling that you might have had tonight. You see what I'm saying? Like if you had that deep glimpse where you were like, oh, that's crazy. Imagine being in a meditative state in that craziness. So I'm not a really, really hardcore meditator. I have my practice, but I'm just trying to stay sane. So in a seated practice, no. But in a dharmic practice and in that way, yeah. I, I have definitely visited all of those in that way of really trying to bring my own mind to that state and especially trying to bring a group's mind there. So that's my short answer. 
We didn't even get to it. We really didn't. Um, so we're going to do another, we'll do this next weekend because Potapata, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot in here I didn't get to. So next weekend. Thank you. Oh, my goodness.